Good morning. I'm glad to have you with us today. If you would, turn your Bibles to Acts 17. That's where we're going to be today. First uh, 15 verses of Acts 17, actually. And um, let me just pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that sets us free from our sin and allows us to live lives that are beautiful in your sight. Because, Christ, you have given us not only your life, but your righteousness, and therefore we are forgiven, justified, and reconciled to God by what you have done. Thank you for the Easter season and the way that it reminds us of your death and your resurrection and the hope that that brings us. But as we've sung already today, Jesus, we know you've promised and we ask that you would come, that you would be in our midst today, that you would minister to us through the Spirit and through your word. We confess today that we need you, Jesus, every minute, every hour of every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me, if you would, that you got some time off. Some time off from being mom and dad and businessman and housewife and whatever consumes your days, and you got an hour of uninterrupted time with your best friend, sitting in a coffee shop, sipping on a double tall non-fat latte and relaxing. Can you feel that? And all of a sudden, somebody busts through the door in the coffee shop and proclaims as loud as they can with some crazed look on their face, I've got good news. What's your response? I can tell you what my fleshly one is. No, thank you. Double tall, non-fat latte, good friend, quiet. Later, later. I don't know what your news is over there, but I don't know you're interrupting this, my comfy coffee sipping time. And I only have an hour. I don't know how you would respond to that. But he keeps calling out, I have good news. And you're not, you can't even imagine the good news I have for you. You know, emotionally though, and in our minds, when times like that happen, there's a moment after the initial, get away from me, you crazy man, to think, you know, something might be going on here. Something, some, there's a backstory 
to why this guy just busted into this coffee shop and is proclaiming to perfect strangers, I have good news. There has to be a story. This didn't just happen out of the blue. There's something influencing this, something that would justify such a radical invasion of my personal comfort and time. Not only is there a backstory, something's happened. Something has precipitated such an amazing proclamation. Something's, had a, something's happened, and it's had a radical effect on this guy's world and maybe mine. It's transformed this guy, and he thinks it's urgent enough to disturb everyone in this room. Well, that's exactly what Paul's been doing. Throughout his second missionary journey, he's been showing up into towns and synagogues all over the place and busting in there and saying, I've got good news. And they're like, hey, whoa, wait a minute. And then chapter 17, it's no different. Persecution keeps Paul moving along the line, and we see him in chapter 17 coming into Thessalonica. And the first thing he does is what he always does in these cities. Where there's a synagogue, that's where he's going. And he's going to bust into their comfy little synagogue where they're hanging out together and... and hearing from the rabbi, and he's going to bust in there, and he's going to yell, I've got good news. Like a crazy man. <laughs> like a wild and crazy man. You see, because this good news had transformed Paul's life from persecutor to proclaimer, from sinful man to a sinner saved by grace. And this was such good news to Paul, he couldn't hold it in. He would stop at nothing than to spread this good news to those who needed to hear. He would write in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he believed that this was this gospel, this good news, was the power of salvation unto those who would believe. First to the Jews and then to the Greeks. But the message and what he was proclaiming was the actual power of God to save people. And he believed it with everything he had. Unbelievable. The transformation it made in Paul's life and how he couldn't hold it in. It was who he was. It was the message of his entire life and his entire being. I think Paul knew something that a lot of us, including me, don't perceive on a day-to-day -day basis. And it doesn't drive us and it doesn't make us do radical things. And it's comfortable. And so today as we read the scriptures, I want you to pray about that. I want you to think about what is driving this crazy man to go from city to city to city and endure great hardship and great persecution and never stop. So we pick up Paul's story 
in Acts 17 and down a couple verses, it says that, that Paul um, came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in and was, as it was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks span here, he reasons with them from the scriptures and explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul, Paul's good news, his message, what he is proclaiming, is completely centered on Jesus and the work of Jesus the Christ. This is his message no matter where he goes and what he does in different forms, in different contexts, in different ways, but this is the central point of his entire message. And it says that he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures in verse 2. So he's coming into the synagogue and he's not saying just because Jesus knocked me off my horse on the Damascus road and blinded me and then gave me sight, do I believe? No, I believe because this is what the scriptures teach would happen. And Paul's holding it up before them for three Sabbaths and he's saying, this is what the scriptures teach. It's not my opinion, it's not my experience. It's what the scriptures teach. It's not my news, it's God's news proclaimed to the world. So Paul was presenting the truth of the gospel with reason. He was holding the scriptures up. He was holding Jesus up. And he was saying, just make the connection. Look. He was opening their eyes to the fact that the Christ had to come and suffer and die and rise again. He's saying, this is the mark of the Savior. This is the mark of the Messiah. This is exactly what we just celebrated last week. These things were fulfilled by Jesus. And Paul's pointing that out to them. See, there's a back story. When all these news, when news is proclaimed, there's always a back story. Something behind, something that the context in which that news comes from. And this is it. It was common to the people of of God, the people of Israel, the Jewish folks. They were in need of a rescuer and a deliverer. And a Messiah. And the Old Testament tells the story of the prophecies of that. And how that was going to take place. And they were just waiting. They were praying the same thing we just sung. They just didn't know it was Jesus. They were saying, come Messiah, come. And they were longing for that. Desirous of it. 
And Paul is proving to them once again, this one you've been waiting for has come. And he's taking the scriptures and he's showing them what that Messiah was to do. And he took them to passages probably something like this. It doesn't tell us in our text exactly where he took them. But if you look at Psalm 22, um, Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And it talks about in verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Who spoke almost those exact words from the cross? Verse 14, I am poured out like a water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up with, like a pot shared. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. These are the dying words of the Messiah. And he probably went to Isaiah 53, as we've been in last past week a lot. That proclaims that the Messiah was to be despised and forsaken of men. He was to be crushed For our transgressions and our iniquities, the Lord caused our iniquity to fall on him. He would be cut off from the land of the living and for the transgressions of God's people. He rendered himself as a guilt offering, justifying the many by bearing their iniquities. And at the very end of that section it says this therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors a dead man can't make trans um, cannot make intercession for the transgressors there is a light that is being shed in Isaiah, that this guy's not going to stay dead. And then in Psalm 16:10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So there was a backstory. They were waiting on a Messiah. They were waiting on a rescuer to come. But now, at this time, something had happened. Something had taken place in history that made Paul just go crazy and just yell from the rooftops, I have good news. Something had taken place to prompt Paul to be intrusive into people's lives and their comfort and where they were living. Jesus had come. Jesus had come and he had fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Messiah. He had died, he had suffered for the iniquities of his people and he was raised on the third day, conquering death and giving those who believed life. Everything had changed. And Paul proclaims, Jesus is the Christ. Scripture What Jesus did, you can come with no other conclusion, right? 
He's used reason and logic to put these two together in the authority of Scripture and said, you can't come up with anything else other than Jesus is the Christ. And this is good news. And it changes everything. Nothing in the world stays the same now. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is good news, and it centers on who Jesus is and what he has done. And so the crowd gathered in the synagogue, the crowd gathered in your coffee shop, in the places where you go, this has got to be proclaimed. But there's a question. It's the same question Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, 15. He said, who do you Who do you say that I am? In other words, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? When you look at Scripture, and you look what Christ has done, do you believe? There's no more important question for you today, for me today, for anybody, anywhere, at any time on this planet... Who do you say Jesus is? Is the most important question. And oftentimes what happens is we get distracted with all kinds of other questions. Because what is flooding in at us? Turn the news on. Evil everywhere. Wars all all over the place. How can, you know, and then the question rings in your mind and in your neighbor's mind. How can there be so much evil if God is good? Right? Or what about those over on the other side of the world, the heathen, that never hear the gospel? What about them? Those are good questions, but they're not going to get you what you're looking for. Those questions can be answered, but they're answered in one person. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why is there evil? Because there's a backstory. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Because we chose as humans to defy what God had created us to be. And therefore, evil exists and flows all over our world. And because God is good, because God is good, there's good news. There's good news. This isn't the end. This isn't it all. He promised he would send a Messiah, a rescuer, a redeemer, and he has. And it is good news. And nothing else can be the same. The world can't be the same anymore. So Paul's good news is focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ And Paul's good news, like any news, is received in radically different ways. It's fascinating to me in this passage, the way it's received. In verse 4, some of them were persuaded. So some of the Jews that were there in the synagogue with the scriptures on, and Paul telling about Jesus, were persuaded. Some. But look who else, look who else (laughs) responds to the gospel, right? Right? A great many of devout Greeks and not a few leading women. 
So the upper leading class of the city, a lot of the wives, not the guys, they take a while, they're a little hard-headed. The wives were coming to Christ. And the Greeks... So people who didn't even know they needed a Messiah and didn't even know the promises of those prophecies, they're the ones coming to Christ, and just a few Jews. So here's hope for your gospel presentation. No matter how good you are at contextualizing the gospel into people's lives, God's going to do with it what he does. I mean, Paul just made the most amazing Jewish, contextualized gospel presentation that you could do. And only a few come. But the people around, hanging out in the courtyard, the Gentiles and the women, they are believing and following. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because the Jews thought, at least those in Thessalonica right there, thought that the Messiah would be a conquering king who who would deliver them from Rome and their other enemies and They didn't really like the notion of this suffering Messiah. And they wanted a conqueror king. Because that implied that somehow they were sinners who had iniquities that had to be carried by a Messiah, right? And suffered for. That means they had to admit that they were a sinner. And they saw the Gentiles... As the sinners. Not them. They were the people of God. Waiting on their Messiah to come. And so, not from Scripture, but from what they had formed in culturally and in their mind, they had made a Messiah of their own choosing and their own liking. And they rejected Paul. Absolutely rejected him. Does that sound familiar? A Savior, not defined by what Scripture says, but what we like, what we want, what we want Jesus to look like. Have you really sat down and read the Gospels? Jesus says a lot of stuff I don't want to hear. I don't even like. Like, you know, leave your father and mother and follow me, you know, let the dead bury the What? I love my mama. I don't leave her behind. I what? We love a Christianity that is comfortable, respectable, easy, middle class, suburban. But what's the danger in that? It's not truth. It's not formed around God's revelation and good news. It's formed around what we like and what we don't like. So when I was early on in ministry, um, Sandrine and I were at a conference with a bunch of youth, and there was a speaker, and he used this example, and he said, you know, I was talking to this girl, and we were talking about all the things that needed to change in her life because now she had professed Christ. And, and she, he said, she said, well, I don't like that verse. And he so he brought her another one, and she goes, no, nah, I don't like that either. I don't like that either. And he's like, 
So you're just going to get your big Bible blotter out and just start blotting out the things you don't like and just create a religion that you like and are comfortable with. And so we laugh about that all the time. We hit passages and we're both wrestling with them. We're like, man, it's just easier to get a big Bible blotter out and be done with that. But that's not the way God has revealed his truth to us. And if we create a Messiah or Savior in our own liking, then we will minimize the dangerous nature of our brokenness. We will minimize how broken we really are. How messed up, how to the core we are sinful. We will develop a Jesus that's a really nice guy. He's like an auto club mechanic. He's really nice. Really friendly. Comes at our beck and call. Aids us when we're broken down and fixes us up and gets us back on the road as fast as he possibly can. But if you understand biblically the nature of your problem and my problem and your neighbor's problem and the problem of every human on the planet, it's you are sinful to the core. And by your sin, you have made yourself an enemy of God. And there's no way you can clean that up. There's no way you can help that. You can't, you know, we look at it. We look at our brokenness as like we had an accident, like a car crash. Like, you know, we were driving and, you know, accidentally turned the wrong way, turned into some traffic and bam. Or mechanical breakdown on the side of the road. And all we need is a little body work and paint. All we need is a little tune-up. And we can get back on, on the right track. Scriptures tell us, no, you're broke down. No, no, no. no. There's no fixing you. There's no fixing you. You can't fix yourself and nobody else can fix you. You need a rescuer. You need a redeemer. You need someone who will make you new from the inside out. That's your backstory. That's my backstory. And so within that kind of culture, this kind of good news, it doesn't play well. Doesn't play well in this passage in Thessalonica, and it sure doesn't play well with your friends. If you busted into one of your friends' houses or somebody in your neighborhood, you just knocked the door down and said, Hey man, I've got good news. And, Whoa, back out. Step out of my door, please. I've got good news. You're a sinner. How's that play? That doesn't play well. Because that's not the good news. But it's truth. It's the truth. The good news, though, is that God loved you. He loves us and He created us for His glory and for His worship. And He's created and He sent His Son into the world, into His creation. To suffer and die for the iniquities of His people. To be raised on the third day to give them life and give it to them abundantly. But it's not playing well. And when they found 
they were looking for Paul and Silas. They went to Jason's house where he was staying and they didn't find them. So they grabbed Jason by the arm and they drag him out and they drag him out of the house. And this big mob, you know, isn't it amazing that in these times, they're looking for someone to help them fight their fight. And what do they do? They go to the, the rabble of, the, I mean, they go to the, the guys that wouldn't believe anything they believed. Be like going down to the local pub and getting a bunch of drunk guys wound up and go do and then go take care of business. It's crazy. But that's what they do. They're so against this. And so they drag Jason in and some other brothers in to this setting. And what do they do? This should be familiar after last week. This should, this should sound really familiar to us. They come up with some trumped up charge of some insurrection and rebellion. And that, you know, Jason's in on it. And they got another king. They're going to put Jesus as king. Well, didn't you remember Jesus? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing what's going on. And once again, it all comes down to the question, who is Jesus? Is he the king? Yeah, he is the king of the universe. He is the king. So there's truth in what they're saying. But he's not ready. He's not trying to overthrow Caesar. He doesn't have to. You know, Jesus said something very interesting in light of this situation. In Luke 21, uh, verse 12 and 13, he says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And in verse 13, he says that this will be your opportunity to bear witness. We run from persecution. We think persecution is evil. We think it's absolutely not. We should be living the comfy life. You know, persecution is put out there in, as a means to stop the spread of the gospel around the world, yet continually through Acts, what have we seen? The exact opposite happened. Persecution happens and the gospel is spread. It is the opportunity for the gospel to go out to the ends of the world. So the next time you in, encounter hardship and persecution for your faith, or the reason when you proclaim the good news and you bump up against that, it's your opportunity. It's your opportunity. Don't fall away from that thinking somehow you've done something wrong or some, this is some kind of punishment to you. No, this is an evil world that does not want to take in the good news of the gospel. Therefore, persecution happens. But even in that persecution, this is what your persecutors need. They need the hope and the good news of the gospel. We just sang about it. Stephen was stoned. What happens out of that? The absolute pushing of the gospel out of Jerusalem to the ends of the world. It's unbelievable. So once again, that's what happens. And in our text, 
the brothers immediately, after all this happens, get Paul and Silas, and by way of night, uh, they take them to Berea, or send them to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue once again, standard procedure. If there's a synagogue there, that's where they're headed. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So in verse 11, we see these Jews were more, more noble, not like nobility or birth, but in action and how they lived. They were living under the authority of Scripture. So everything Paul said, they took in, and daily they examined. Daily, they looked into God's word to see, is this true? And so what's the different response? So they're examining, rather than hearing Paul talk every week at the, right, on the Sabbath for three weeks straight, just three preaching moments. No, no, the people in Berea, every day, in the word, examining the word. And what happens? Many, many came to believe. Why is that? What's the difference? When you submit yourself to the authority of God's word, God's word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and pierces between bone and marrow, and it will pierce you. And the Spirit of God will use his word as you fall and humble yourself under its authority to deliver you from sin and to deliver you from what ravages you, and you will be changed. Unbelievable. So what about you? Because I don't know, I don't know in that moment if you are like me, but that's hugely challenging and amazingly convicting. Every day in the Word. Every day examining. So how do you decide whether your opinions and your feelings and your, and, and your circumstances are not driving you more than the authority of God's Word? Or the truth of His Word? How do you examine your feelings? How do you know that they're right or wrong or whatever? How do you know that your opinion is true? God's word says, God's word says, God's word says. That's the only way you know. They bring your emotions and your feelings and your thoughts and your circumstances under the authority of scripture and let them determine what the truth is. It is that and that alone that the, made the Bereans noble. Was amazing. They were eager and humbled themselves under that authority. You see, faith in Christ, belief in Christ, as the Bereans have done, is not just a leap off of a cavernous cliff. Just, you know what? Just silly. I'm just going to run, just throw my hands in the air. That's faith. No. The word says that faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Paul used reason. Paul used scripture. Paul used God's revelation to man. 
and the knowledge of that to bring people to Christ. Because it wasn't just my experience or how I felt or whatever. It was the truth of God's word and the truth of God's plan, whether it looks like it's going on or not. That is the way people come to faith. It's based on the revelation of God concerning his son. It's Paul's message completely. And neither is faith in Christ an emotional decision based on just feelings. I don't know about you, but in a moment, probably in just a moment you've been sitting in this room, your emotions have gone here, 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 and over here. One thing I said or one thing that was in the scriptures sent you over here, and one thing I said you were like, whoa. And then you're like, eh. And your emotions, they're all over the place. You're all over the map. The reality is if you didn't have enough cups of coffee today, your feelings probably aren't the same. If you had a little more coffee than you're used to, your feelings may be a little better. (laughs) But they're all over the map. They can't be trusted. They're fickle and subjective to all kinds of things. You need objective truth in your life, and the authority of Scripture brings that to you. It's the only thing we have. You can't base it on feeling. Man, I was all over the place yesterday, just like this. Can't be based on that. Lastly, coming to Christ in faith, oftentimes for the people that you talk to and for us, maybe some in this room, there's this list of conditions. List of just you know, I'm exploring Christianity, but you know, if I, if I put my faith and trust in Christ, then I'm going to have to give up this over here. Or I'm, you know, if I, if I think, if I believe in this, then all these other things have, have to kind of go away because they don't mesh because Jesus says he's the only way so there can't be multiple ways so if I do believe in Jesus and I can't believe in these other things and so I really can't design my religion around what I like or what I don't like I have to come to Jesus and humble myself and say okay God as you will I will obey I receive your grace and I will walk in obedience You know, if you really think that Jesus is the Christ, if he's really God, then all conditions are gone. It really frames around that one question once again. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe he is? If he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one to come and rescue you from your sin and deliver you and give you a life, not just here on earth, but a life to come in eternity, If you believe that, that has to radically shift the way you live. And why wouldn't you stand in the middle of the street and cry out with all you have, I've got good news. I've got good news. Something's happened and it's changed everything. It's absolutely changed everything. No longer do you have to live in sin. No longer do you have to be a slave to it. No longer do you have to be an enemy of God. You can be reconciled to him and call him father. Because 
someone came, suffered, and was raised again, and his name is Jesus. The passage goes on and says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned, these guys were persistent, man. (laughs) They learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea. Um, They they came there too, agitated, stirred up crowds, but they they got a good thing going. They go into town to town stirring up people. And they say that the other folks are turning the world upside down. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by sea. Um, But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving command of Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, once again, persecution comes, and the brothers think it's really important that that Paul moves on, and so they get him to Athens, and next week's going to be really great. Don't don't stay home tomorrow, or next week. Um, Paul's, Paul's masterful sermon in Athens is, is unbelievable, um, absolutely unbelievable to the Greeks in the Gentile center of, of Greek world. So please, please don't miss that. But you know what? Here's what grabbed me this week. No matter if Paul's in Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, what is he doing? He is busting through the door like a crazy man saying, I've got good news and here's the good news. It's the good news of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, the one who died and rose from the dead so that sinners like you and me can be forgiven of their sins and find salvation. Receive God's spirit and be granted eternal life. See, Paul believed that Jesus was that. And this news was too great to hold in. So it just consumed him. See, he really, 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 really believed that the gospel was the power unto salvation for those who would believe. He believed it. He lived it. He preached it. We've seen in Philippi where he Shared it with businesswomen and slave girls and Roman guards and in Thessalonica and in Berea. All those who were gathered in the synagogues, Jews and Greeks and leading women, ordinary people and members of the aristocracy. Didn't matter. Absolutely didn't matter. He proclaimed the good news to every social economic class, every ethnic group, every man, woman, child. Didn't matter. Because he had good news. Good news. How about you? How about you? Is it good? Or is it just, eh, it's a great thing happened in my past. Part of my story. No, it's part of the human story. Jesus shows up. Everything's different. You need to know that. You need to experience that. And let me tell you about him. So back once again, we come to our single question of the day. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe? Do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ? 
Because your backstory and mine begins with God creating you in his, for his glory and for his worship and to live with him and enjoy him forever. That's the reason he created you. That's the reason he knits you together in your mother's womb, specifically the way you are. You are the beautiful crown of God's creation. But each of us have gone astray, and each of us have fallen away, and each of us has spit in his face, and each of us has become his enemy. But God wouldn't leave it there. He loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son. Not only just to come and live a sinless life on this earth, but to die in your place. To take the iniquities that you have on his shoulders and die in your stead. And then raise again on the third day so that you might have life. And all you have to do is believe. Put your faith and your trust in him and him alone. And he will save you. Unbelievable. That's good news. So today as a worship team comes and leads us in a response, I want you to pray. And I want you to think about the fact, what do you really believe about Jesus? Who do you really, really, really in your heart say Jesus is? Because I'm telling you, the scriptures in Paul say that he is the Christ. He is the one that would come and bear your sin. And be raised on the third day that you might have life. And everything in your life, all of your behavior, all of what you do, all of how, what you feel, all of, everything centers around this one question. Who do you say he is? Do you believe that he is the one, the Messiah, the Savior, the rescuer of the world? And will you place your faith and trust in him? So today, you respond accordingly. Sing loud. Come down here, pray. If you want to talk about some of the things I've said that you're not quite sure about, I'll be down front. I'd love to talk with you. There'll be other elders here to pray with you. But let me pray, and let's respond to the preaching of God's word. Lord Jesus, we need you. We believe. I believe that you are the Christ the one who was to come and save me from my sins. To create in me a new heart and a new life that could honor and glorify you. Help me rest in that. Help me believe that with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. That I might love you and love my neighbor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.